Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Whether you're joining us on site or online, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, let me quickly bring you up to speed. We're in a sermon series that we're calling Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And and our goal has been simply to follow Jesus around as he moves through the book of Luke. And we've been paying attention to what Jesus has been doing and to what he's been saying. And as we, list, and as we watch Jesus' actions and as we listen to his words, my prayer is that we would find Jesus beautiful and compelling and that we as Christ followers would have greater certainty about the things that we believe, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that Jesus really is the promised Messiah, and that Jesus really is the Savior of the world, and that Jesus really is worth following no matter how hard it can be at times. Now, the title of today's sermon is, uh, What Does It Mean to Follow Jesus? It Means Being a Neighbor, Part 2 of 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 25 to 37. And we're going to read probably one of the best-known and most beloved parables that Jesus has ever taught Uh, which is traditionally and historically come to be known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So people of God, this is the word of your God. Would you please give it your careful attention? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Last week we began to consider this question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, Luke gives us a sketch or a picture of what a follower of Jesus is to be. First, as we learned last week, it means to be a missionary. 
And we saw that in verses 1 to 24 of this chapter. Now, a missionary is someone who has been sent on a mission by someone else. And because every follower of Jesus has been sent on mission by Jesus, that means that every follower of Jesus is also a missionary for Jesus. And our mission, as we learned last week, was simply to preach the gospel and to heal by doing works of mercy and justice. Our mission is to both declare the love of Christ with our words and also to demonstrate the love of Christ with our works of mercy and justice. Second, as we're going to learn today, it also means being a neighbor. And next week we'll learn that it also means being a worshiper. So according to chapter 10, Luke tells us that to be a follower of Jesus means to be a missionary, a neighbor, and a worshiper. And today, Jesus will teach us what it means to be a neighbor through this parable of the Good Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor. So here's the outline for today's sermon. First, the context of the parable. Second, the lesson of the parable. And third, the application of the parable. Let's begin with the context of the parable. So why did Jesus teach this parable in the first place? Well, in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Now, this wasn't a lawyer that you're probably thinking of, like a, like a secular lawyer. This was a lawyer in the sense that he was an expert in the law of God, which was the Torah, the first five books of Genesis. So this lawyer is really more like a Bible scholar, more like a seminary professor. And, and he asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he wanted to test Jesus by seeing what kind of answer Jesus would give. And Jesus answered the lawyer's question with a question of his own. He said in verse 26, Hey, you're the expert on the law. What does the law have to say? How do you read the law? And then the lawyer in verse 27 answered with the conflation of what we, uh, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer basically said, Love God and love your neighbor. And in verse 28, Jesus said that the lawyer answered correctly, and that if he did this, that he would live. Now we need to do a little time out here because some people may get confused. Because we have the rest of Luke's gospel and because we have the rest of the New Testament, we know that Jesus was not teaching some sort of works righteousness. Jesus was not saying that you could earn or merit eternal life by loving God and by loving your neighbor. The gospel tells us that we inherit eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel says that we inherit eternal life by believing and trusting in Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. But we demonstrate that we have inherited eternal life through faith in Jesus by loving God and loving our neighbor. In other words, we don't earn eternal life by loving God and neighbor, but we do demonstrate that we have eternal life by loving God and neighbor. You see, loving God and loving your neighbor is beautiful evidence and proof that you have experienced the love of God in Christ and that you have inherited eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So let me give this quick gospel clarification so that none of us here today are confused. Loving God and neighbor is not the way to eternal life, but it is the way of life those who have eternal life 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Loving God and neighbor is not the way to eternal life, but it is the way of life for those who have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the lawyer was bothered by Jesus' answer, and so he asked another question. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? Exactly who am I supposed to love? You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews only considered other Jews and non-Jews who lived in their lands and who followed their laws to be their neighbor. Jews did not consider Gentiles to be their neighbors, and so they didn't feel an obligation to love Gentiles. You see, this lawyer wasn't concerned about, uh, he didn't want to know who he was supposed to love. He actually wanted to know who he was allowed not to love. Basically, the lawyer was asking, surely you can't expect me to love everyone. Surely there are some people who don't deserve my love. So who is my neighbor? Who is, who am I obligated to love? So that's the context of this parable because Jesus is answering this question. Who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And now we get to the parable itself, to the lesson of the parable. And in order to answer the lawyer's question, Jesus gives this parable. A certain Jewish man was traveling from the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And this Jericho road was notorious for being dangerous. In fact, it was even called the bloody way because so many times people were attacked and robbed and even killed on this road. And sure enough, this Jewish man, as he's going on the Jericho road, fell among robbers and he was beaten. They robbed him of all of that, all that he had, even his clothes, and they left him naked and half dead. But lucky for this poor man, by chance, Jesus says, by chance, a priest happened to come along. Now, a priest was a religious professional. He worked in the temple. His job was to, to teach God's word, to offer sacrifices, and to give spiritual guidance to God's people. A priest's job literally was to love God and to love people. And so lucky for this man, a priest comes along. Surely this priest will help him. But to our great disappointment, the priest walks by, doesn't stop, doesn't help. Next, a Levite comes along. Now, a Levite was also a religious professional, and a Levite also worked in the temple. His job was actually temple maintenance and to assist the priests. So a Levite was also someone that you would expect to help this person. But to our great disappointment, yet again, the Levite walks by. Now, we don't know why the priest and the Levite walk by without stopping to help. Maybe they didn't risk, maybe they didn't want to risk getting unclean by touching a potentially dead body because you know what that means? That when they got home, they would have to quarantine themselves from their wives and kids. Or, or maybe they were tired and hungry and they just wanted to get home, eat dinner, and get some rest. Or, or maybe they were afraid that the robbers were still nearby and, that, and if they stopped, they might be attacked next. Or maybe they thought it was none of their business. Or maybe they thought someone else would stop and help this poor man. Or maybe they didn't want to get their hands and their clothes dirty because this man was, you know, dirty and bloody and to help him would get me dirty. And I don't want to do that. Or, or maybe they thought it was this old man's fault for getting mugged. Because everyone knows when you travel the Jericho Road, you don't carry anything worth uh, valuable. 
What was this man doing carrying valuable stuff, tempting the robbers to, to, to mug him? It's his own fault. He's in this situation. He doesn't deserve any mercy. We don't know the reasons why the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help. All we know is that they did not stop to help. They just walked by, and they left the poor man in his suffering and distress. Now, if I can contextualize this, it would go like this. A man is lying, battered, bruised, hafted on the side of the road, and a senior pastor drives by and sees the man. But he doesn't stop, continues to drive on. And then an assistant pastor drove to the same spot and saw the man on the road, but doesn't stop his car and continues to drive on. It's very sad and very disappointing. And it is at this point in the parable that Jesus gives the ultimate twist, the shock or the surprise of the story. In verse 33, Jesus said, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now the people listening to Jesus were like, Oh, great. This guy is done. There's no hope for him. If a priest and a Levite would not stop to help him, surely a Samaritan wouldn't stop to help him. In fact, Jesus' Jewish audience would have half expected the Samaritan to walk up to the, to the Jewish man, spit on him, kick him, and then pass by without helping him. And the reason for that was because there was deep animosity and hostility between Jews and the Samaritans. You see, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans as racially and religiously inferior. First, the Jews thought the Samaritans were racially inferior. You see, in the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were racial mongrels because they were half Jewish and half Gentile. In the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were racially impure and unclean, and they treated them with disdain and hostility. The Jews viewed and treated Samaritans the way many white people viewed and treated black people during Jim Crow. And sadly, some even to this day. Second, the Jews thought the Samaritans were religiously inferior. The Jews thought that the religion of the Samaritans was compromised, heretical, and blasphemous. It offended the Jews that the Samaritans actually thought that the temple in Jerusalem wasn't the right place to worship God, but rather another mountain in Samaria. That infuriated the Jews that the Samaritans would even dare believe something that blasphemous and heretical. So the Jews looked down on and despised the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in return, hated the Jews because it's natural to hate those who look down on you and despise you, isn't it? And so because of this hatred and animosity between Jews and, and Samaritans, Jesus' Jewish listeners would have been certain that this Samaritan would offer no help to this suffering Jewish man. But to the surprise of his hearers, Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. It is a Samaritan, not a Jewish priest, not a Jewish Levite, who actually stops to help the suffering Jewish man. Now, in order for us to kind of, I think, grasp the surprise and the, and the shock of this story, let, let me um, imagine if the parable went like this. 
a racist white man wearing a Proud Boy standing by t-shirt and a hat with a Confederate flag on it is beaten up and lying on the side of the road. And a white senior pastor walks by and doesn't help. And a white assistant pastor walks by and doesn't help. And then along comes a black man wearing a Black Lives t-shirt. He stops and he helps this racist man in a Proud Boys t-shirt. It would be surprising, wouldn't it? Even shocking, because you don't expect someone to show mercy to someone who they would deem their enemy. Because of the bitterness and the hostility between Jews and Samaritans, a Samaritan was the last person in the world we expect to stop and to show mercy to this Jewish man. So, what does it mean to show mercy? Well, Jesus uses the example of the Samaritan to tell us what showing mercy looks like. It means three things. First, to show mercy means to see. It begins with seeing. In verse 33, it says, And when he saw him. You see, when the priest and the Levite uh, saw this man, all they saw was a burden. But when the Samaritan saw this man, he saw an image bearer of God in need. He saw a person created in God's image. And according to the Bible, all people, whether they look like you or not, whether they believe like you or not, whether they agree with your politics or not, whether they live the same lifestyle as you or not, every human being is an image bearer of God. So when you see a person in need, what do you see? Do you see a burden? Or do you see an image bearer in need of help? Second, to show mercy means to have compassion. In verse 33, it says that the Samaritan had compassion. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when you read Luke's gospel, Luke describes Jesus as having compassion more than any other human feeling. Jesus is always moved with compassion for the sick, for the disease, for the hurting, for the weeping. Nothing makes you more like Jesus than when you have compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with. So to have compassion is far more than simply having pity for someone who's in need. It goes way beyond that. To have compassion for someone means that you're willing to suffer with that person so that his suffering might be relieved in some way. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., while preaching on this parable, made this astute observation. He said this, The priest and the Levite asked, If I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan asked, If I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Compassion is what enables you to stop thinking about yourself and to start, start thinking about your neighbor who may be in need. And third, and most importantly, to show mercy means to act for the welfare of the suffering person, even at a cost to yourself. In verses 34 and 35, we see the practical actions that this Samaritan took to take care of this man. And it was all at a cost to himself, at a cost to him, wasn't it? First, he applied first aid by uh, bandaging, up, uh, bandaging up his wounds with oil and wine. Oil and wine at the time was used as medicine, and oil and wine were not cheap. 
Second, he put the wounded man on his own donkey. Do you know what that means? He had to walk alongside the donkey because the donkey was now carrying the wounded man. And third, he took the wounded man to an inn and took care of him for the entire night until the next day. Let me just... (laughs) When was the last time you scrapped your plans for your evening and the entire next day to take care of someone you don't even know? He adjusted his personal schedule for this man. And then he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was two days' wages. I don't know how much money you make in two days. Some of you make a lot of money in two days. He gave two days' wages to this innkeeper to take care of this man. And because this Samaritan had to get back to his business, he said, hey, but I have to leave now. I got stuff I have to take care of. But when I come back, whatever else you spend— for food and board and and, and medicine, whatever else you spend, I will repay you. And this Samaritan did this for a man he didn't even know, for a man who would despise him if he were conscious. Friends, to show mercy requires actions. Actions that will always cost you resources. Your time, your money, and your effort. Friends, it is not easy or free to show mercy. It will always cost you something. Listen to this quote on this passage. The priest and the Levite were too busy working for God to care like God. For them, and too often for us, people in need are problems, interruptions, nuisances. They intrude on our privacy. They pull us from our duty and distract us from our responsibilities. They keep us from our pleasures. We agree that they need help, and we hope that someone does help them. But just not us. Ouch. That one hurts, doesn't it? So we've talked about the context and the lesson of the parable. Lastly, let's talk about the application of the parable. Now, by the end of the parable, Jesus changed the question from the lawyer and turned it on its head. Do you remember the original question from the lawyer? Who is my neighbor? But in verse 36, Jesus changed that question and asked, so which one of these three proved to be a neighbor? See, to Jesus, the question, who is my neighbor, is irrelevant. Unimportant question. The real question, the important question is this, are you a neighbor? And according to Jesus, a neighbor is someone who shows mercy to anyone in need. Pastor Tim Keller said this, not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you must obey the second commandment, which commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. And that means you're to love all of your neighbors, not just the ones you like or agree with. You're to love both your Republican neighbor and your Democrat neighbor. You're to love both your pro-Trump neighbor and your pro-Biden neighbor. You're to love both your white neighbor, your black neighbor, your brown neighbor, and your yellow neighbor. You're to love your Christian neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, your Hindu neighbor, your atheist neighbor, and your secular neighbor. You are to love your American citizen neighbor and your illegal immigrant neighbor. You're to love your straight neighbor and your LGBTQ neighbor. 
You're to love your pro-life neighbor and your pro-choice neighbor. You're to love your rich neighbor and your poor neighbor. You're to love your wise neighbor who makes good choices and your foolish neighbor who makes poor choices. Not everyone is your brother or sister in Christ, but everyone is your neighbor. And Jesus commands us to love our neighbor and to be a neighbor to all people. We are to show mercy to anyone in need. No matter how different they may be from us. No matter how different their politics may be. No matter how different they may be from us racially. No matter how different their view of biblical sexuality may be. It doesn't matter. If they are an image bearer of God, and if they are in need, we are to be their neighbor and to show mercy. Let me ask you a question. What if it were you that were the victim of injustice? You were the one that was mugged, beaten up, stripped, left for dead on the side of the road. What if your arm's broken, your leg's broken, you can't move, and you're just lying there? What would you want for that person passing by to do for you? Wouldn't you want that person to show you compassion? to stop and to help you when you're helpless? You would want that, wouldn't you? I know I would. The law says that you were that person, spiritually speaking. Your sin, your disobedience, your foolishness, your rebellion left you spiritually battered, naked, and stripped of all of your dignity. And you weren't just half dead, you were all dead in your sin. And there you were lying, condemned and ashamed in your sins by the side of the road. And here's the worst part. And you have no one to blame but yourself. It was your own sin and foolishness that got you into that hot mess. But the gospel says, the gospel, I love the gospel. But the gospel says, Jesus saw you. And Jesus had compassion on you. And he acted for your welfare, even at a cost to himself. Jesus had true compassion on you because Jesus was not willing to just suffer with you. He was willing to suffer for you, for your rescue. And Jesus helped you not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. You see, to rescue you, Jesus was willing to travel a bloody way of his own. Do you realize that when Jesus gave this parable, he was on his way to Jerusalem where he would shed his blood on a cross to save you from your sins, from death, and from hell. Jesus is the one who proved to be a true neighbor to you as he acted for your welfare even at the cost of his own life. You see, friends, the power to be a neighbor comes when you first see that Jesus was a neighbor to you. When you realize that you were shown mercy by Jesus, when you realize that Jesus was a neighbor to you, when you were destitute and hopeless, that gives you the motivation and the power to show mercy to others and to be a neighbor to others. You see, friends, showing mercy to others is beautiful evidence that you have been shown mercy from Jesus and that you truly are an heir of eternal life. Friends, you will never be a neighbor until you have first been neighbored by Jesus. 
And when you see the beautiful compassion that Jesus had for you when you were dead in your sins, and when you see what Jesus was willing to do for you, not just walk beside a donkey, but carry a cross for you, when you see that, when you begin to truly see that by faith, it will melt your heart. And it will make you say, how can you love me like that, Jesus? And you'll begin to want to show compassion to others because you have been shown so much compassion by Jesus. Because you have been shown so much mercy by Jesus, it will make you want to show mercy to others. So what, what's the takeaway for today? It's simply this, Christ Central. Go and be a neighbor and show mercy to those who are in need. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a neighbor. To be a neighbor to everyone, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're different from you racially, economically, religiously, theologically, in every other way that they can be different from you. If they're in need, you're called to be a neighbor to them. So let me ask you a question before I stop. Who are you called to be a neighbor to? In the places where you live, work, and play, who is Jesus calling you to be a neighbor to? Who needs your compassion? Sacrificial actions at this time. Who can you be a neighbor to? And let me also say this. Being a neighbor is not something that you do once in a while, once or twice a year. Being a neighbor is something that you do regularly and consistently, just as, just as you worship God regularly and consistently, just as you fellowship with other believers regularly and consistently, you are to be a neighbor regularly and consistently. And in addition to showing mercy to those who are in need, to be a neighbor also means to work for justice. Yes, you must have compassion for those who are in need, and at the same time, you must also work to ensure that injustices are prevented in the first place. Pastor Perrin Rogers is a, is a black pastor. He's a friend of mine. He and his father joined us for one of our central talks uh, months ago, uh, which we called an evening to listen and to learn. It was an opportunity for us as, 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 as a majority Asian American church to listen and to learn from the experience and perspective of the black community. And in that talk, Pastor Perrin mentioned something fascinating. He, he referenced the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he said something like this. It's good and necessary to take care of victims who are on the side of the road. But what about the Jericho Road itself? What can be done to the road so that muggings can be prevented in the first place? Can we have more street lights? Can we cut down the bushes so there's less places for robbers to hide? Can we hire more police officers to patrol the road? What can we do so that this injustice of mugging doesn't happen in the first place? You see, as followers of Jesus, as neighbors, we must not only care for the victims of injustice, but we must also work to improve and reform systems, structures, laws, and policies so that we can prevent injustices in the first place. Of course, as long as there's sin and darkness in the hearts of men, there will always be injustices. There will always be victims of injustice. I know that. But that does not mean that we do not work 
for better systems, for better laws, and for better policies that can reduce the number of injustices that are committed. To be a neighbor means not only to meet the needs of suffering people, but also to address broken systems that allow suffering to happen in the first place. Being a neighbor means both showing mercy on a personal level and working for justice at systemic and structural levels. Friends, this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. To do for others what you would wish them to do for you when you're the victim. To do for others what you would want them to do for you when you're suffering. To do for others when you, as, to do for others what you would want them to do for you when you're the one languishing and suffering in unfair and unjust systems and situations. Christ Central. What this world needs now more than ever, especially during this pandemic, is for followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus. So today, as your pastor, and on behalf of Jesus your Lord, I want to charge you, go and be a neighbor. See what the Samaritan did, and you go and do likewise. I believe that Nova would be a better place to live if all the Christ followers in Nova were good neighbors, don't you? Christ Central, let it begin with us. Let us be good neighbors for the glory of Christ and for the good of Nova. Amen? Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for showing us today through the parable of the Good Samaritan part of what it means to follow you is to be a neighbor, to show mercy to anyone who is in need, to anyone who is suffering, and to be willing to do that even at a cost to ourselves. And we can do that, Jesus, because we see that you showed us mercy first at a great cost to yourself. And now as people who have received such great mercy, how can we not want to show mercy to others? Holy Spirit, would you give us the power and the desire and the motivation to do so for the glory of Christ and for the good of our city. It's in Jesus' name.